All right. Um, I want to just put a disclaimer that my message this morning, just so you know, has tested me nonstop for the last two weeks. It has been probably, oftentimes preachers will be like, yeah, I was preparing and I really struggled with this, this, these attacks. I've been tested properly for the last two weeks. So I'm preaching to myself first this morning. Um, there's quite a bit to get through. Um, so I'll do my level best to try and do that. If I need to continue another time, we can do that as well. All right, so just so you know, I've been through the ringer with these things we're going to look at this morning. All right. So just a bit of a side note as an introduction. One of my favorite bands growing up in South Africa was called MIC. I don't know if any of you South Africans know of them or heard of them. Thank you, Nikki. <laughs> One person. They were a strange combination of 90s pop a little bit of dance, a little bit of rave, and some random acoustic music thrown in between there. Um, it, was made, it was basically like the ultimate rave Christian boy band. Okay. They were my fa- one of my favorite bands. We loved them until 363 came out, if you know, if for, the, for the younger people from South Africa. And so there was one song that they used to have, and well, they have, not used to have. It's called Psychedelic, just to throw out the rave side of the 90s music out there. And the lyrics went something like this, and I've never forgotten this. It says, love is not a feeling, it's an act of your will. It's devotion, not emotion, and it truly will fulfill. You just got to make sure it's for real, psychedelic, pure devotion. And it's something that has always stuck with me. I I can sing it from heart, from memory. I didn't have to look up the lyrics. But then I remembered, sorry. Love is not a feeling, it's an act of a will. It's devotion, not emotion, and it truly will fulfill. You just got to make sure it's for real. Psychedelic, pure devotion. There we go. <laughs> That's how it goes. <laughs> that was for free. Um, <laughs> and we'll delete that from the recording. Um, but that, this, So I, just out of interest sake, I went and I looked up the lyrics last night because... It's like there was so much more to the song. I actually didn't know what the song was about, to be very honest. I just remembered that. But it's basically this guy's talking about problems within a relationship. And it's just like, well, is this true love? Is this not true love? And I love the second verse. It says, I opened up the word, took, a, took the problem to the doctor. After all, what a better place to look about Jesus. Christ is the king of love. He said, love is patient, love is kind. I carried on looking, but I couldn't find Where's this emotion, the thing that's appealing? It drives your thoughts right through the ceiling. (laughs) Terrible 90s lyrics. (laughs) I'm talking about feeling. He said to me, you're heading for collision. you got to realize that love is a decision. What? Kick the bass in your face. Those are the actual lyrics. Um, And it says, well, valuable knowledge is what I learned. Earned. Love is not a feeling, is the lesson I learned. And I think this is so pertinent to what we're looking at through the series is that we're looking at this love. What is love? Um, and so last two weeks ago, we started this part and we looked at the first section. And so 1 Corinthians 13 can be broken down into three parts. The first part is love is a necessary gift. And we looked at how if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I do not have love, I'm a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. And if I have prophecy and know all the mysteries and all knowledge, and and if I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give everything I own and I give over my body in order to boast, but I do not have love, I receive no benefit. 
And we looked at how we have received this unconditional love that is so necessary through Jesus into our lives. And we are not here to hoard that love, but we are here to, just to be a host pipe of his love. And to, as it comes in, we give it to those around us. And we looked at how the enemy has come and he's brought counterfeit things for all these things that we've mentioned here. Speaking in tongues, knowledge, prophecy, mysteries, faith. And he's come and he's tried to distort us. And so the world operates in these things and thinks, well, I'm a good person. I can do these things. Or I'm saved. I can speak in other languages and in special tongues. But if we do not have love, it is of no benefit and it does not remain. And so today we're going to be looking at the second part, which is love is beautiful. And then after that, we'll look at love is eternal. And so we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 13. I'm going to pick up from verse 4, and it says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not envious. Love does not brag. It is not puffed up. It is not rude. It is not self-serving. It is not easily angered or resentful. It is not glad about injustice, but rejoices in truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends, but if there are prophecies, they will be set aside. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be set aside. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when what is perfect comes, the partial will be set aside. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I set aside childish ways. For now we see in a mirror indirectly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. And these things remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come together this morning and we can look at your word and we can have fun and we can laugh and But Lord, we also know that you reveal yourself through Scripture, that you reveal things in our hearts through Scripture. So Holy Spirit, I pray that as we go through this message this morning, would you firstly arrest my heart in these things. And Father God, I pray that the seed that is sown would arrest each of our hearts and bear much fruit and multiply. In Jesus' name, amen. I read this story and it's quite cute. It says, it's a story about this little girl who's invited for dinner at a friend's house. I think it says, yeah, she's in first grade. And the vegetables that were being served was buttered broccoli. I would not say no to that. And the mother of of her friend says, oh, do you like broccoli? And this child says, yes, I absolutely love it. But when the bowl of broccoli is passed around, she declined to take any. And the hostess said, I thought you said you love broccoli. The little girl replied sweetly, yes, ma'am, I do, but not enough to eat it. (laughs) you see the love that we sometimes express is so easily something abstract i love coffee would i die for coffee hell no i love this musician i love this band this is i love this song i love this we go to random people like i love you but this is just used in a way to express a strong feeling or an affinity towards something or someone See, this kind of love is fleeting, and it does not last. How oftentimes have we said, this, oh, I love this song. And then three weeks later, another one comes, oh, I love this song. And then another three weeks, I love this song. Oh. And then you listen to the other one again, like ten, ten years later, oh, I really used to love this song. And it's just this emotion that it's a strong affinity for, but we've used this word love so carelessly and recklessly. 
See, in 1 John 3 verse 18, it says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. You see, our love should not be just in proclamation and in what we can say, but love needs to become something that is an action, in truth and sincerity. And so, like I mentioned a few weeks ago, we looked at love being this beautiful gift, and we saw with Easter coming and the celebration of Christ's death and resurrection, um, how this love was displayed as a necessary gift to save us. <clears throat> you see, we have received this love in abundance. Not that we should hoard it, but in, that it, in its abundance, we should flow in that love and give it to the world around us. Operating from a place of love in everything we do, that this love is the motivation, the necessary thing that we need to strive to build us and push us towards each other. Showing love as a motivation in everything we do. You see, the necessity of love is displayed through our actions as a beautiful gift. And so it flows from one to the other. We have got, we've received this love from the Father, which is necessary to save us. It's necessary for us to show that love to those around us through the motivations of our hearts. And then it becomes this beautiful love when it becomes an action to those around us. And as we read in verse 4 to 7, Paul describes how love acts, how it's a beautiful act. In the English translation, and this is some big English, uh, these words are prescriptive adjectives. So they describe what love does, basically. But if we go back to the original Greek, and I'm not going to even try to go down that road, the words that are used in the Greek are verbs. And if I remember anything from school, verbs are doing words. (laughs) So love is not about talking or emotion. Love is about action and devotion. It's about acting out on something. I don't know if you counted how many different things Paul says about love, but I'll tell you the answer is 15. There are 15 characteristics that he mentions in those three verses of what love is and how we show that and those acts of love to the world around us. And so I'm going to do my level best this morning to try to get through this. Um, we'll spend some more time on some of them. We might just go through the other ones that are a bit more self-explanatory. But it's important before we talk about this love is that we understand what this love is. And the love, the word that's used here is called agape love. And this is a caring, self-sacrificing commitment which shows itself in seeking the highest good of those around us. So this love is not about what I can get, it's not about what I can give, it's not about feeling good about myself, it's not about trying to make myself feel good. This love is about putting myself aside so that others might know that they are loved. And so we see this was done for us. And it says, uh, sorry, Jesus Christ in his sacrificial death on the cross is the epitome and the embodiment of this kind of love. And honestly, we could do this series over several weeks just looking at these 15 different things and how Jesus fulfilled all of them. But we're going to do that a little bit faster today. (laughs) All right. I think one of the things that I'm reminded of is in James where it says, we show mercy because we have received mercy. And it's the same thing with love. We show love because we have received the sacrificial love that, to the point where Jesus died on the cross and gave of himself so that we might be saved. And so 
we'll look at what Paul says. And he says, the first thing he says, love is patient. And what I want you to do this morning as we go through this is every time I say love is something, I want you to think selfless love is patient. Selfless love is kind. And so the first thing, I don't know if any of you have any issues with patience. It's probably just me. <laughs> is I'm just like, Paul, why did you have to put that one first? Of all the things you could have used, why say love is patient first? And I think this is the one that confronts most of us every day, all day. We go to the petrol station, and there's a queue of 50 cars because everyone fills up from the same side. And you're just like, oh, I'm in a rush. Where's my patience? I go to the checkout counter, and the guy's a little bit too slow in processing, and, the guy, and I, just, I get a little anxious and frustrated. I come home, and my kids have left a trash can full of sweet wrappers all over the couch. I can tell you now my patience does not exist in that moment. And so patience is a very interesting quality because when I don't need it, I want it. And when things start to irritate me and frustrate me and I need patience, it's nowhere to be found. And so this constant juxtaposition between the two things, like I, I want patience when I don't need it, and when I need it, it just is the last thing on my mind. I'm sure I'm the only one that is like that. And so he puts it first because I think Paul knew this is the one thing all of us struggle with at some point. See, the Greek word for this patience is long-tempted. Um, tem- yeah, tempered is the right word. Um, it was, um, Daniel put it when you're talking about James, is that slow to anger or being of long nose. So it's just having a long nose, just a longer fuse. Um, so if you're patient, you're slow to anger. I fail there. That's where I got tested the most. You endure personal wrongs without retaliating. When someone does something to you that frustrates you or you feel like you've been injustice, you've, you don't retaliate. Patience is about bearing with other people's imperfections, their faults, and their differences without becoming judgmental or infuriated with them. Patience is giving people the time to change, the room to make mistakes, and doing this without coming down hard on them. As a parent, I can tell you this is probably the biggest struggle and the biggest challenge I've had in the last week in itself. Give me, I'll tell you a little story. <laughs> I've told a few people this story. So Sunday was Easter Sunday. So I was like, you know what? We're going to do something special for our, kid, for our family. Did a bit of roast lamb, some mashed potatoes, some vegetables. We had some Easter eggs. But like I said to you, I came home, and there was like a literal trash can of sweet wrappers on the couch. Adam is 11, Charlie's 6, turning 7, Ethan is 5. I've been telling Adam since he was 3, so for 8 years, we've been saying, Adam, you don't eat sweets on the couch, and if you do, throw your papers away. 8 years, not just once or twice a, a month, every day. For Charlie, we've been doing this for three years. For Ethan, for two years. So Ethan, we've got the most grace for at the moment. And so, but we came home, and that all just left the sweet papers everywhere. And so we had a bit of discussion. We've been doing the parenting course, and we are good students of the parenting course. And one of the things they said is boundaries and consequences. So it just so happened to be Easter. It was not planned. It was not intentional. But it was just happened to be Easter. And I walked in, I'll be honest, my patience went through the roof. Fortunately, the kids were out playing, so I couldn't shout at anyone, but I did voice my frustrations. 
Um, at this point, the east eggs had been hidden, and I was like, well, there's got to be a consequence. And ho- horribly and horrifically enough, the consequence is the kids were not getting Easter eggs. They could hunt for them if they wanted to, but they were not going to eat the Easter eggs. <laughs> I know, terrible parents, but we are good students of the parenting course, so we passed. <laughs> so poor, I'll tell you the story, Shabe. Adam was gutted. He was very upset with us. He was not happy with this story. Ethan and Charlie, the eternal optimists in our house, were like, hunting's the best part. This is going to be so much fun. <laughs> we did explain it to them calmly before this whole process that this is the consequence of an action of their disobedience. And this is just unfortunately happened to be on this day when there's Easter eggs involved, lots of Easter eggs. I think there were 47. They counted it, torturing themselves. <laughs> but through this process, we're just like, you know what? We had to have patience with them. And part of this and learning about parenting is that we all need a little bit more patience. But that doesn't excuse consequence for disobedience with children. Just saying. <laughs> that's for free. That's, that's a free snippet from the parenting course for those of you who'd like to do it next time. <laughs> all right. And so we all need to be slower to anger. We need to endure the personal wrongs without retaliating. Bear with others' imperfections, their faults and their differences, giving them time to change, room to make mistakes without coming down hard on them. And so did we pass the test? I hope so. Because part of this process is now giving them the room to make the change. They've experienced a taste of what it's like to have a consequence of something. And will they do it again? Probably. Actually, they have already. And, but now it's for us, the test is, do we have patience to allow them to learn and to grow in this moment? They've been taught the lesson, now it's given them that space. And that's the, where the patience comes in. The second thing Paul says is, love is kind. And I love, there's this quote that I read, it says, kindness is patience in action. And so the two flow from one to the other. So Paul addresses the thing we all struggle with, and then he says, next is kindness, and kindness is patience in action. See, the Greek word for kindness comes from a word that means useful. A kind person is disposed to be helpful. He seeks out and looks for opportunities to meet the needs of those without repayment. This person is tender and forgiving when wronged. This, uh, this word was originally used for, that, uh, for mellow wine, just so you know. And it suggests a wine that is not offensive, it's easy on the palate, Basically, it's Canadian. <laughs> and so this, a person who is kind has the ability to soothe hurt feelings, to calm an upset person, and to help quietly in practical ways. There used to be this couple in the church, Don and Ange, and they had two children when they lived here. They've had a third since. And I think Ange was probably one of the most kindest people I've ever met in my life. If you She had the ability to come down to her kids' levels in the midst of absolute chaos and mayhem and just bring such gentleness and kindness into that situation. And it was just a practical demonstration of what love looks like when it's patient and when it's kind. A kind person shows kindness in response to harsh treatment. Jesus says, if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that? For even sinners do the same thing. But if you love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, your reward will be great. 
and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. That's in Luke 6, and 35. See, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. We see that in Romans 2, verse 4. And kindness motivates others towards positive change. As with patience, the real proving ground for kindness normally starts in our homes. Three weeks ago, Dave challenged the men in this church. I don't know if you guys were here for that or remember that. And showing love to our wives. And what does that look like? As an evidence of abiding in Christ, we would flow in love. And one of those things is showing kindness and patience to our wives. The same can be said for all of us in how we approach our colleagues, our bosses, our friends, um, those people around us, our family members, when they get f- just frustrate us a little bit too much. Is, are we showing patience and are we showing kindness towards them? The next thing is, he says, love is not jealous. This is a bit easier for us to digest, and I think that's why Paul put it a bit lower down in the list, because we all know that jealousy is not necessarily a good thing. We all know that we shouldn't be jealous, so it's easy for us to notice these things, or this thing in our lives. You see, but now, jealousy is used both positively and negatively within the Bible. It says of God that he is a jealous God. And that's in a positive sense. It says that he yearns for us. He desires to have a relationship with us. He is jealous for us in that he wants us for himself in a positive way. See, jealousy in a negative sense is related to greed and to selfishness. The jealous person wants to have what other people have. He wants things for himself and is too selfish to applaud the success of others. This person is normally wanting to have all the attention for themselves. <clears throat> James says that jealousy is often the source of quarrels and of conflicts. We see that in James 4 verse 2. It says, you desire and you do not have. You murder and envy and you cannot obtain. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And so jealousy is something that we all know isn't a good thing. It's something that's easy to recognize and easy to check in our hearts. Patience and kindness, on the other hand, not so much. And so part of loving selflessly is to not be jealous of others, learning how to celebrate the success of those around us. Sometimes it can be difficult when it's something you've been working towards yourself. The next thing is that selfless love does not brag and it is not arrogant. These two ugly twins are related. They both stem from selfishness and are the flip side of jealousy. See, jealousy is wanting what someone else has. Bragging is trying to make others jealous of what you have. Jealousy puts others down where bragging builds us up. You see, bragging is an outward manifestation of pride. And so this is another thing that's easy for us to address, to notice when we're a bit prideful, be like, oh, look what I got, look where I went, this is what I did, trying to build myself up and make myself look better so that others might be jealous of me. And so this is a dangerous one because it leads others into something that love is not, which is jealousy. You see, someone that brags often tries to impress others of their great accomplishments in order to make themselves look good. But love isn't trying to build me up. Love is trying to build up other people. Love is humble. The humble, loving person is aware that everything we have is an undeserved gift. And we see that in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7. 
So he doesn't boast, but he boasts in Christ alone, not in what he has. The next thing is that selfless love does not act unbecoming or selfless love is not rude. So this love is something that does not needlessly offend. It has good manners. It is courteous, polite, sensitive to the feelings of others, and always uses tact. The reason we are rude, of course, is that we think only of ourselves and not of others. And so a lot of this love, I don't know if you've noticed this trend, when Paul goes into what love is not, is showing that love is sacrificial. It's laying down the things that I want so that others might grow and have. See, love treats others with respect. Through our actions, we show that we love people. We show respect for others by opening doors for people, saying please and thank you, simple things like that. The things we teach our children, when, how not to be rude to other people, is a way that we should conduct ourselves. I don't know if you've ever gone for lunch with someone and they barely look at the waiter. They don't say please and thank you. It's like, I want this. Uh, I, give me this. I would like. Instead of saying, you know, could I please have this? Simple thing. But it just shows a respect and a reverence for someone else that we might not even know. And through that, we show love and care for someone else. And so love is not rude, but love thinks about others and treats others with respect. The same way we would like to be treated with respect as well. See, love does not seek its own. It is not self-serving. I'll be honest, my biggest struggle with, when we got married, and sometimes still is, is selfishness. I'm a very independent, I was a very independent bachelor. I cooked for myself, cleaned for myself, paid for myself, did all the things myself. When I was sick, I went to the doctor myself. I got my own medication. I was quite happy to not, have in, to not need anyone else. That's just who I am. Sometimes I'm a bit of a lone wolf on an island, but that's not healthy. And so with getting married, my selfishness was definitely highlighted, and God had his finger on it for a very long time. And sometimes I still regress to that. And so love does not seek its own. It is not self-serving. See, love is not selfish. It does not demand its rights. Alan Redpath says, The secret of every discord in Christian homes, communities, and churches is that we seek our own way and our own glory. Another guy says, if you can cure selfishness, you plant the Garden of Eden, a place of life and hope. See, selfishness is the root problem of the human race. It is the antithesis of love. That's a big word. And it is self-sacrifice, which, uh, which it, love is self-sacrificing. And so selfishness and love cannot coexist. If I am selfish in my marriage, I put myself first and not my family if, I put my, if I'm selfish in my workplace, I put myself first and not the goodwill of my colleagues around me. If I'm selfish in my friendship group, I make things about me, forgetting about the needs and the love of others around us. I found this story. It's about a lady called Elizabeth Elliot. I'm not sure who she was, but she was speaking on this thing of love is not self-serving to an audience that included some young children who were sitting in front of her. As she spoke, she wondered how she could make this plain to them so that they could apply it. A few months later, she, she got a letter from one of the children that happened to be in that meeting, a six-year-old boy, and he wrote, I'm learning to lay down my life for my little sister. She has to take a nap in the afternoon. I don't, and I don't want to. But she can't go to sleep unless I come and lay down next to her. So I lay down with my little sister. See, that is the kind of love that is not self-serving. 
a love that sacrifices TV time to go lay down with his little sister. I promise you, if my kids did that, my heart would melt instantly. (laughs) Imagine if we did that kind of thing in our homes, in our workplaces, in our families. In Mark 10, verse 45, it says, Jesus came not to be served, but to serve those around us. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. Imagine, and this is a conversation I told you about that I had with my clients about whether it was unjust that Jesus came and died for us. Imagine if Jesus said, you know what? I don't want to lay down my life for, the, for these people that you've created. Imagine if Jesus had stayed in heaven and what would have happened? But Jesus came and he laid down his life. He sacrificed as the ultimate price himself, laying his own selfishness aside, laying his own self aside, laying his literal life down for us. How much more are we to show that to people around us? Because we have received that. The next thing is love is not easily provoked. The Greek word here means to sharpen, to stimulate, to rouse, to anger. Basically, love is not touchy. Love does not have a hair-trigger temper. I don't know if you've ever been around someone with a short fuse. I grew up in a home, unfortunately, where this happened, where the slightest thing would trigger the biggest reaction. It was like this ticking time bomb that you never knew when it was going to go off. See, love is not easily provoked. And I think this all ties in. It's like, if I come home and I know I'm hungry, I'm tired, lonely, angry already, <laughs> that happens sometimes, my trigger gets very short. And that, those are things that affect all of us. And so we've got to be so careful when we walk in love that we produce a fuse that is very long. I don't know if you've ever watched those old cowboy movies where the fuse is like 45 meters long. They light it and everyone just stands waiting and waiting. And then the wind comes and nothing happens. That's what we've got to be like in love, is to be not easily angered, not easily provoked. Um, I know Dave says to us, he's like, if you do get offended, firstly make it difficult to get offended. But if you do get offended, get over it 30 seconds. That's these were the advice to us over and over again. You've got 30 seconds to get over it. And so that's what we need to do. We need to have the short account, but a very long fuse. Okay. So often people that are easily provoked, people that are angry, people that are like time bombs that fuse very quickly, leave a trail of destruction around them. And so we are called to show love to be peacemakers. I think it's Jane that says, above all else, pursue peace. That's a hard one. I don't know if you've ever tried that. It's It's a good challenge. Challenge you for five days just to be the peacemaker in every aspect of your life. I can tell you now you're going to struggle from day one. I know I would. And so we've got to be slow to anger. We've got to make sure that we are hard to be offended. We've got to make sure that we are slow to be provoked. You see, part of this is that love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Oftentimes when we are provoked, it's because we feel that we have been wronged. And that's where Paul goes into the next thing. It's like selfless love does not take into account wrongs suffered. And so oftentimes, this word that's used here is actually used in a numerical sense. It's basically love does not keep account. 
It is used of God not imputing our guilt to us, but instead imputing his righteousness of Christ on our account. See, love doesn't keep a tally of wrongs and bear a grudge until everyone is paid for it. It doesn't try to gain the upper hand by reminding other person of past wrongs. Love forgives and doesn't hold on. Very fine line between this joke I want to tell. (laughs) This is not about anyone in particular. (laughs) I'll go down this road. It's a story that I read as an example for this. But basically, this one man says to another man, you know what? My girlfriend, whenever we have a fight, she gets very historical. And the guy's like, don't you mean hysterical? And he's like, no, I mean historical. She rehearses everything I've ever done wrong and the whole history of our relationship. And that's keeping score. And that's not how we are to be. And I'm not just, this is not a woman thing. Men are just as guilty, just so you all know. Men, if you don't think you're guilty, just listen the next time you have an argument with your wife or with someone else. We do it as well. I know I do it. I know other men do it. And I know women do it as well. We are all guilty of this. But love does not keep account. So if we are showing this love that we have received to those around us, we will not keep account of these things. You see, love does not rejoice in injustice, but rejoices with the truth. These are two things together. See, these these qualities are the flip side of one another. Love is never glad when others go wrong. To rejoice in truth means that we are glad about the behavior in accordance with the truth of God's word. And if someone we don't like falls into sin, we don't gloat, but we grieve. And we show love and kindness towards them so that they might come to repentance and then we rejoice with them. And so this is a fine balance and this is where discipleship is so important. We've got to put ourselves in a position where that when we are walking in wrong, others around us can, in relationship and in love, help us and guide us to place where we have breakthrough and victory and this is so so necessary where we look at what scripture says we look at the things we are struggling with and in that love we are able to walk into freedom and victory with those around us and it's important that when we are the person that's walking with someone else that we don't gloat in that we don't rejoice in someone's struggles or their failures but we rejoice in victory and seeing them victorious in christ The next thing is that selfless love bears all things. See, to bear all things is to protect others. Love protects others. (coughs) To protect by covering. Love doesn't broadcast the problems of others to other people. Love doesn't run down others with jokes or sarcasm or put-downs. Love defends the characters of another person as much as possible within the limits of truth. Love doesn't lie about weaknesses, but neither will it deliberately expose and emphasize them. And so love that bears all things honors other people. And if you want to understand what honor is, honoring other people is to leave them fully clothed in conversations with other people. Not exposing their weaknesses, not exposing their flaws, but building them up in love, even in their absence. And this is very, very important. And so this is the opposite of gossip. When we have gossip, we try and break people down. We laugh about them, we ridicule them in their absence. 
But yet says love honors others. It builds them up and encourages them even when they're not there. And so this is a check for us to make sure that we are honoring those around us. Love honors, just as Christ honors us through what he did for us, raising us up into righteousness through the Father. We do that with other people. and We show that to them. The next thing is that selfless love believes all things. This does not mean that love is gullible. Um, the NIV puts it, love always trusts. It does not mean that love is not suspicious of doubting of a person's character or motives without good reason. See, if trust has been broken, it needs to be earned again, step by step. But love believes that other person is innocent until proven guilty, not guilty until proven innocent. So often in society, a claim will be made and the person will be guilty until they can grovel their way to prove their innocence. And we are called to live opposite to that. See, everything that love is, is countercultural to what the world is trying to promote. If there is a problem, love doesn't jump to blame. Love jumps to understanding. <clears throat> I know I grew up in a home where my mom trusted us probably way more than she ever should have. But the beauty of that is that it allowed us to grow up in freedom knowing that she had our backs. It wasn't a case of something happened, she wouldn't climb down our throats and shout at us and break us down and try and grill us and interrogate us for the truth. She would always be like, okay, I know that this is out of your character. What has happened? Honestly, the way she did that was absolutely amazing. I can tell you a story. I think it was grade five, so it's a standard three, ten years old, somewhere around there. We had a spelling test at school, and the teacher of the class we had a bit of a history. I wasn't always the best student. And she accused me and the guy sitting next to one of my friends of cheating in the, in the test. And it was quite a big thing. I mean, it was a 10-mark quiz, but it became a massive thing because I, was, I said to her, like, I did not cheat. To this day, I can tell you now I did not cheat. I promise. <laughs> but the problem was that I, it was assumed that we were guilty from the moment that she made that accusation. And I remember... It got to the point where she, we, we were in a Christian, or Christian-governed school, basically. She even made us put our hands on the Bible at some point and swear that we were telling the truth. Like, it was pretty intense. And I remember going home that night, and I had this letter from, from, this, from this teacher that I had to give to my mother because she had to sign for the next day, and this whole thing came about. And I still remember my mom to this day. She's like, I trust you with the truth until I can understand that it's not true. And I remember this, that stuck with me right through my teenage years. I knew I could go to my mother with anything because she wouldn't put blame on me or guilt on me from the beginning, but she always trusted that we were telling the truth. Did we hurt her in the process? A few times, because we did lie. We were kids. We were human, actually. And so, but there was always this thing of trust first, trust first. Love always trusts. And when that trust is broken, there's forgiveness, there's repentance, there's restoration. It doesn't just write off, but there's a process of restoration to bring that relationship into right standing again. Got two more points. The next thing is selfless love hopes all things. Selfless love is not pessimistic. Love refuses to take failure as final. And I think this is so important, especially when we deal with other people, is when someone has failed, that's not a representation of who they will always be. Love always 
hopes. Love has a good, godly optimism that says, I know you can do it because God in you is able. It does not ignore reality. It doesn't close its eyes to problems, but love rests on the promises of God and that he is working all things together for our good in all things. So love always hopes. And I think this is something I've sometimes struggled with. I've been very vulnerable this morning. Um, sometimes, I've been, I, I'll be honest, I've been hurt a lot of times in my childhood and growing up where I've written people off because I can't see a change as possible in their lives. And that's something that the Holy Spirit has worked in me to get to the point. Where like, I know that we all are going to let other people down at some point. We all, whether intentionally or unintentionally, we're going to hurt other people. But with God, change and restoration is possible. Just as um, love believes all things and always trusts, love also hopes for restoration and reconciliation. And then the last thing is that selfless love endures all things. This is a military term, meaning that love continues even, in the, even when sustaining an assault of the enemy. Sorry, that was terrible English. <laughs> the, love, the, the word means that even in... Ah, oh, jeez, I can't, can't read or speak. The word endures is a military term meaning to sustain the assault of an enemy. Okay, hopefully we got it now. It is an idea of holding up under trial, of perseverance in spite of difficulties. It means that love hangs in there. It's not just a passive stoic attitude, but a positive triumphant spirit that sticks out. Oftentimes, we tend to bail out of tough situations pretty quickly. A friend says something we don't like, it's easy to turn our back. We have a disagreement with someone, it's easy to walk away. But love fights. Love endures all things. It says, you know what, we may have had a problem, but we are going to work this out together with God. See, love endures all things. And that's how love acts. It is selfless. It is wholly directed to build the other person. None of these things is about me. None of these things is about building myself up or serving myself or trying to make myself better than other people. All of this is about loving other people, building them up, encouraging them, showing them grace and kindness. You see, if we replace love in this passage of Scripture with Jesus or God, we have a description of who he is. He is patient, kind. He's not jealous. He does not brag. He is not arrogant. He does not act rudely. He does not seek his own. He is not provoked. He does not take into account the wrong suffered. He doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. He always protects. He always trusts. He always hopes. He always perseveres. And if we want to love one another, we have to focus on his love for us, that necessary gift, and walk in his spirit who produces his love in us. In closing, I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to go into a time of worship again. But for us to truly, truly reflect on the love of God to those around us, we have to yield to him. We have to repeatedly confront our own selfishness and daily practice his love to those around us especially when no one is watching. If we could have our lives, 
if we could live our lives displaying the selfless love to those around us, imagine what a testimony this would be to the world, a world desperate for real and authentic love. You see, this is a beautiful gift that he did it all for us, sacrificing his own life on the cross so that we could live in freedom. I think one of the challenges with this is this is something we have to practice every day. Every day, love is patient, love is kind. It is not easily provoked, it is not easily angered. It does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but in truth. And how do we live that out every day? But the beauty of this is that we don't have to do it on ourselves, by ourselves. And we've, this is where we've been looking with the Holy Spirit. It's when we are walk with the Holy Spirit, when we're led by the Holy Spirit, we have His help, we have His guidance in how to do this every day. So I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to pray and then we'll go into a time of worship. Father God, we just thank you for this beautiful love that you displayed for us in the way that you spoke with those that society had thrown out, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, the lepers, the broken, the hurting. We thank you, Lord, that through your example, we could see how you were patient and kind and loving, how you rejoiced with those, Father God, and how you did not turn away those that were broken and hurting, but you welcomed them in. And Father, I pray that as we go through this week and as we continue reading through this, this portion of Scripture, Father God, would you arrest our hearts in where we need to grow and to learn. And Holy Spirit, I pray, would you come in the sweet, gentle way that you do, and would you show us, Father God, not because you want to show us where we are failing, but because you want to show us that there's so much more. And Father God, I pray, Lord, that as we show these attributes of love to those around us, Lord God, that this world and this community and this country would see the testimony of you in the way that we love and that they might come to know you. We just thank you, Father. We give you all the honor and the glory.